Welcome back to Propel, Allen and Overy's podcast dedicated to all things related to self-driving vehicles. Toyota, Tesla, Uber Cruise, Easy Ride, just a few of the names in the self-driving space. Some of them are more familiar than others, but all of them want to be household names and their products and services immediately identifiable. To discuss those issues, our guest today is my law partner and colleague, David Stone. David is a brand and design specialist and the author of a leading textbook on EU design law. Based in London, he also is a part-time deputy high court judge. Brand and design protection in the AV space is the focus of today's episode. David, great to have you. Thanks, Paul. Let's start with some basics. Trademarks are relatively well-known to our listeners. They know that a company's mark may distinguish their goods and services from others, and so can obtain protection for the names and logos they use. So yes, Paul, most people are aware of words as trademarks, so brands, but also remember that there are many other sorts of trademarks that can be registered and thereby protected. In this particular space, think of logos, so a a leaping jaguar. Think of slogans, the Audi slogan, Vorsprung durch Technik, or progress through technology. Registering slogans as trademarks can sometimes be awkward because they need to be memorable, imaginative, surprising, unexpected, so a little bit unusual. Anything that's purely laudatory just won't work. But stepping further than that, you could also look, for example, at the names of car models, so BMW X5 or Tesla Model X, or even, for example, the name of a car's digital voice assistant. Many of you will remember Kit. If it's a made-up name, because that will be inherently distinctive, that's registrable. Otherwise, for all of these sorts of marks, if they're not inherently distinctive, then they have to acquire distinctiveness through use. So consumers have to recognize the sign and whatever that sign is, they have to recognize that sign as indicating a particular source of origin. So you mentioned the car's digital voice assistant, Um, but beyond the voice assistant's name, Can the actual voice or the sounds that it generates be protected through trademark rights? Of course, sounds can be registered as trademarks if they're distinctive. And I'm going to try my best to give you some examples. So many listeners will know when you log into Netflix or start watching a Netflix film or television program, there's a particular sound that it makes. Uh, That sound can be registered as a trademark and in fact is uh, in many parts of the world. It goes something like, no, I haven't done that very well. Uh, similarly, Intel for computers, again, not performed particularly well, Paul, but gives you the idea. Those sounds are registered as trademarks and something that could also work with autonomous vehicles. For the voice itself, so the voice of the car as it talks to you, or even for those of you who have sat-nav systems, the voice that directs you on your way, that's going to be harder to protect through trademark law. Because again, people aren't going to see it as necessarily indicating a particular source or origin of the service that's being provided. It's just a voice. But if someone were to operate a similar system using a very similar voice, you might be able to use unregistered rights such as passing off if people are confused. That's interesting. All right, well, let's test all of this then. So company names, logos, slogans, got that relatively straightforward given our general familiarity as consumers. But what about the design of things? Uh, Certainly in the AV space, that's important. Certain vehicles, and even 
parts of the vehicles, if you see them from afar, some consumers will know exactly what that car is and what type it is. Can those designs, those shapes be protected? Absolutely. And sticking with trademark law, just for the moment, there's a lot of vehicle shapes that are registered as trademarks. They tend to be a little bit unusual. They tend to be very well known. So the Beetle, both the old and new version, the new version of the Mini, the Porsche 911, and the Boxster, uh, the Smart Car, the Lotus, all these are vehicles, the shape of which has been registered as a trademark because either they were held to be inherently distinctive, that is, they were so unusual that consumers would recognize the shape as source of origin, or they've acquired distinctiveness through use over time. There's been some decisions in Europe recently that have gone against trademark holders. For example, the London taxi litigation uh, was not a success for the trademark owner. So one does have to be quite careful uh, in trying to enforce some of these marks. Another recent example, the Porsche Cayenne was refused registration as a trademark. So again, you have to be a little bit careful in just saying, yes, all these distinctive shapes can be registered. Some of them can be. Others will require quite a bit of evidence of acquired distinctiveness. And that evidence, just to be clear, is that through survey evidence, like one would see in traditional trademark litigation, or is it something else? A combination of things usually. So if you can get survey evidence where you show the shape to a number of consumers and say, what is this? If they give you the answer that you're after, then that can be extremely helpful. You can also establish acquired distinctiveness through the depth and breadth uh, and length of time of a marketing campaign. The fact that experts in the field recognize it, so some expert evidence all sorts of ways of obtaining evidence of acquired distinctiveness, but that doesn't mean it's simply done. Uh, one of the reasons so few of these marks get registered is that proving acquired distinctiveness can be challenging and it can be costly. So it sounds like trademarks for the design of a particular either vehicle or a part can be a real challenge. What about protecting just the design through other rights? Is there anything else manufacturers or part makers can turn to? Yes, of course. So in Europe, we have what we call registered design protection. There's a similar US right called a design patent, uh, and they tend to go under one or either of those expressions around the world. I'll talk about registered designs. So registered designs protect the appearance of the whole or part of a product, and that the legislation expressly includes features such as shapes, contours, colors, materials of three-dimensional products, but also two-dimensional products such as logos, icons, fonts, graphical user interfaces, and I might come back to those in just a moment. For a design, you don't have to show that consumers recognize the shape as an indication of source of origin like you do with the trademark. The design is protected per se as a design. So that can be particularly handy for all sorts of manufacturers, particularly those in innovative spaces such as autonomous vehicles. And so you'd be looking at protecting all sorts of aspects of an autonomous vehicle through design protection. So not just the shape of the whole vehicle itself, but also some of the more unusual parts inside. You can protect the shape of the seats, the shape of the steering wheel, the instrument panel, the ignition key. I mentioned graphical user interfaces, and this is a quickly growing area of design law and particular icons that get used. And remember, with European law, and I'm conscious it's different in a number of countries, but with European law, the design is protected per se, so it doesn't matter how it's then used. So if you protect the design 
say it's a logo, you can then use it and stop others from using it in relation to a graphical user interface, spreading through onto the key itself, uh, onto the app uh, that people might use on their mobile device. But then also you can stop people using it on kids' pajamas or clothing, other sorts of merchandising caps, mouse mats, the various sorts of things that people do. So from that perspective, designs can be really, really useful. Don't forget that animated graphical user interfaces are also protected. So for example, the way that a particular indicator on the dashboard might move or might interact. In order to be protected as a registered design, the product has to be new or the design has to be new and have individual character. I'm not gonna dive into what that means, but in essence, the key is that you have to file for protection before you've made the design public pretty much anywhere in the world. This is a key thing for everyone to remember because if the design has been displayed, for example, at a trade show, that will make protecting the design in some countries impossible. In the EU, you've got 12 months, so a 12-month grace period in which to get your filing on board. But as a general rule, you should try and file for registered design protection prior to the designs being disclosed anywhere in the world. It's one of the key hurdles and key takeaways to remember about design law. Other than the timing element that people need to be very cautious of and careful, it sounds like design protection, the standard there is lower or easier to achieve than certain trademark protection, at least in this space. So would that be better for car companies to pursue design protection in this space? Or can they choose both at the same time? What are their options when it comes to their parts, the overall car design or elements of the car? What's best for them? Paul, I try not to use words like better. They're just different rights and all of them are useful. I try and think of intellectual property rights as like a quiver full of arrows. So think back to Robin Hood sorts of days. You want as many different ways of going after an alleged infringer as you can. So you'll have copyright, which doesn't require registration in many countries of the world. You'll have your patents, which you will have had to have registered. You'll have design rights, both registered and unregistered, and I might come back to unregistered rights in just a minute. Uh, you'll have your trademarks, uh, you'll have passing off or unfair competition. They're all different rights that do different things, and none of them I would consider to be better than others. They all have their uses. So trademarks are fantastic, particularly because they can last forever. One of those IP rights where if you look after them by using the trademark and by paying the renewal fees, it can last forever. And there are trademarks that are over 100 years old. That sort of ongoing right is particularly valuable. Registered designs can last for up to 25 years. And in many cases, that will be enough. If you think of any clothing that you're still wearing, Paul, that you've owned for 25 years, it's not likely to be many items in that collection. So things do turn over reasonably quickly and particularly in this particular space. So 25 years will often be enough, but design law in Europe gives you that opportunity to put the product on the market with some protection. So the protection that design law offers, use that time on the market to build reputation in the product and develop what I've called acquired distinctiveness so that you can then apply for a trademark for the shape of the product and that trademark will last forever. Ultimately, what you'd like is protection when you launch to stop third parties from copying your product, morphing over time into a slightly different right, but that has protection indefinitely. So from that perspective, really useful to have the two things running side by side. 
that's an insightful strategy. Let's continue to drill down on the designs here because of the different standard and that early protection that you're suggesting. Car parts. Can you obtain design protection for individual components, like either an engine design or the radiator or the hood bonnet? Paul, there's a big debate in Europe that's been running now for a long time. And to summarize the debate without taking sides, car manufacturers want strong design protection so that consumers can be guaranteed high quality spare parts. Spare parts manufacturers want little design protection for spare parts so that they can enter the market. Uh, and consumers, of course, want high quality spare parts uh, at a very low price. So the result of that is that spare parts are one of the exceptions to protection for design law in the EU and the UK. And the way it's expressed is component parts of complex products not visible whilst in normal use. And most people won't ever have to learn that expression. But basically, any internal car parts aren't protected by the EU-wide design regime. So pretty much anything under the bonnet, what you might call the hood, is not protected in terms of design rights. For the external parts of the car, they can be protected. But again, to enable people to fix their vehicle if they've had an accident, it's important that it's not an infringement to replace a panel on the car. So again, there's an exception for repair of a car in order to return it to what it used to look like before the accident. Now, that doesn't apply to upgrades, such as fancy alloy wheels, for example, but it will stop a repair person from infringing by returning the car to its original appearance. There's also an exclusion for features of a design solely dictated by technical function. So you can think there's lots of elements of a car that might be solely dictated by technical function, those particular features not protected by design law. So it's by no means simple to say, you know, every part of a car can be protected. That's not the case. Uh, you have to look at the individual feature or part of the car and see what capacity there is for protection. One of those exceptions, the repair exception, is there a distinction between repair and replace in that context, or are they considered the same thing? And consider the same thing. So if, for example, you've dented the fender, there's two ways to repair it. One is to attach a new fender. The other is to try and get the dents out of the old one. I either would be considered repair in these circumstances. The design registration that you've talked a little bit about, I'm curious about unregistered designs as well, but registered design may likely be unfamiliar to many listeners and certainly many in the industry. Any practical tips in pursuing that course for registering designs? Yes, of course. What I generally suggest doing is sit down with the designers themselves, if you can, and say to them, what about this product is new? What is innovative? What's different to what's on the market? We as lawyers will rarely have that sort of background information, but often the, either the marketing team will or the designers themselves will know what's new, what's different, and importantly, what competitors are going to try to copy, because that's what really you're trying to guess when you file your designs. What is it about this product that third parties are going to try to copy? So that would be step one. Step two would be to try and provide a penumbra of protection around the key features that are new. And that's done in a number of ways. So take, for example, you might have come up with a fancy new handle for the car. So don't file for the whole car, just file for the handle and perhaps file for some variations on that handle. 
Unlike a trademark, a registered design never needs to be used in order to stay valid. So you can have that whole 25-year registered protection without actually ever using the design itself. So creating that border of protection by filing some variations can be a really helpful tool. Another thing to keep in mind is the possibility in Europe of deferring publication. So we're able with EU filings to defer for up to 30 months. That's quite a long period of time in design terms uh, in a fast-moving industry such as this. And the idea behind it is to ensure that you have time to finish development and get the vehicle to market and launch it in your own time on your own terms rather than have that disclosed by the intellectual property office. It's fair to say that there are plenty of people watching what's filed and writing about it. So once it's filed, and particularly in the EU where you might get a registration certificate the same day as you filed, so if you file in the morning, it's published in the afternoon, you do have to be quite careful. So deferring publication would be part of that strategy in circumstances where you're still waiting for the business to be ready to launch. And then the final thing to say is with design law, it's very much what you see is what you get. What's important is what's represented graphically in the drawings, pictures, or computer-aided design renderings that are filed. So it's important that they are right and good quality. Generally, we advise going for line drawings if you can. That will provide the broadest scope of protection. But lots of people choose to file CAD renditions. Lots of people choose to file photographs in color or black and white. So there's lots of options there for getting the filing on. So remember, do it early before you publish. Try and get that broad number of protection and make sure you're using good quality images. Great advice for registered designs. I'd be remiss not to ask the same thing uh, about trademark protection and any tips you have for obtaining those rights in relation to connected cars. Any thoughts? Best thing to do is make sure you won't be infringing third-party marks before you launch. No one wants to be in the position where the product has to be pulled from the market because someone else has already filed that trademark. So very important to do what lawyers call availability clearance in the markets in which you're interested. So generally, we would say anywhere you propose to launch this product in the next five or so years, make sure you've had that done and make sure you've had it done locally. There's plenty of examples, uh, including from the vehicle industry, of people not taking into account local languages and selecting marks that might be offensive in the particular local language. So get some advice early in the jurisdictions in which you're interested. Many multinationals are now clearing uh, you in up to 100 different countries. So it's quite an exercise. It takes some time. And it's now, because of the number of marks that are registered, it's now quite unusual to be able to find a mark that's clear in every country that you want to use it in. So it can take some time to try and negotiate around the blocks. As you're doing your clearance, think about areas into which your business might wish to expand. So it's not just vehicles. There's been a recent case in the Court of Appeal here in England in relation to Bentley Motors, who obviously have sold cars under the Bentley mark uh, for a long, long time, just over 100 years, 1919, they were founded. But they've ended up infringing third-party rights owned by Bentley Clothing, who had a registration for Bentley for clothing when Bentley Motors started making shirts and things that infringed. So if there are areas in which you're likely to want to expand, 
then keep that in mind. And it might not just be goods, it might be transport services, for example, areas where you might be interested in future. For those who don't know, trademark law operates on the basis of the Nice classification named after the city in southern France, whereby all goods and services, all possible goods and services are divided into 45 classes and searching tends to get done by classes. Class 12 is vehicles. Class 37 would include repair services, for example, but also be looking at, for example, class 9, where we find a lot of electronic equipment, uh, or class 38, where we find internet and telecommunication services. So those sorts of things are really areas where autonomous vehicles are entering into in a way that cars haven't necessarily in the past. All interesting and very good advice. I could imagine that some of our listeners are hearing your advice about designs and then morphing into trademark rights, and especially took interest in that clear guidance that getting those design rights before publishing is very important. But the market, of course, moves very fast. And this industry is evolving incredibly quickly. And so there might be some who are thinking, oops, we failed to do that. We failed to take those steps to register a design before it was released onto the market. Is there anything that those folks can do to either get their rights back, get some additional protection or different protection to address that problem? I guess, Paul, the first thing I'd say is start registering going forward. Yes, you might have missed this out this time, uh, but let's look at things that haven't yet been disclosed, things still on the drawing board, still in production, and look for ways to obtain some registered design protection for those moving forward. Don't just give up on the right altogether because you've missed some deadlines this time round. We talked earlier about acquiring distinctiveness in a shape and being able to register a trademark. The Jeep Grill is a good example of that. So perhaps get by for now, but through your advertising, promote the shape as indicating origin. Look for the car with the particular shape as part of your advertising. That will help you acquire distinctiveness, what uh, you would call secondary meaning, uh, enabling you to obtain a trademark in due course. Uh, and think too of unregistered design rights. These are a, pretty much a European phenomenon in that they don't exist in many other parts of the world. But you can get rights against copying in Europe for up to three years for designs that were first disclosed in the European Union. Now, we can have a long chat about exactly what that means. But if, for example, the launch that disclosed the design was within the territory of the EU, it may well be that you've obtained those three-year rights and have something that you can enforce. So all is not lost, but do take the opportunity to review your processes and procedures and make sure you're capturing new and innovative designs going forward. I hear you walk through that, and especially when you mentioned the European Union, Brexit does come to mind. What impact, if you could share a few minutes, on that issue of what impact does Brexit have on those unregistered design rights in the EU, given that EU-UK distinction that's now in existence? Yeah, sure. And let's perhaps, Paul, start first with the registered designs. So obviously, prior to Brexit, there were EU registered design rights that covered all member states of the EU, including the UK. Now that the UK is no longer an EU member state from the 1st of January 2021, the UK Intellectual Property Office, using the word cloned, uh, cloned all those uh, registered rights at EU level and created UK national rights that are enforceable as the old EU right uh, would have been, but in the territory of the UK. 
So that's the good news. That was all done automatically and for free. There was no charge for it. So a total of 2 million rights have been cloned, both EU trademarks and EU design rights, and largely without error or complication. So that's the good news. That's very much business as usual. For the unregistered rights, I talked about disclosing it, for example, a Munich car show to get your EU rights. The UK has come up with a UK equivalent unregistered design right, which will be available to designs disclosed for the first time in the UK. That, for some designers, creates a bit of a quandary because they have to decide whether to launch for the first time in the UK, get a UK-wide right uh, that protects in relation to a population of about 67 million people. Alternatively, you launch for the first time in the EU and get an EU-wide right that protects in relation to roughly 440 million people. And that will certainly be something that designers will be considering uh, which they want. There's not yet been an authoritative case that tells you that an internet disclosure, for example, might be simultaneous in the UK and the EU, enabling you to pick up both rights. But that's hopefully something we're going to see the courts grapple with shortly so that designers, manufacturers aren't having to make that choice. Interesting. So just exploring the the contours of this unregistered design right and some of the other issues you've raised before about car parts and things that are visible and not visible and, and functional and all those other exceptions. Can you get unregistered design rights for individual car parts based only on the disclosure of the overall car design. So your Munich example, I published or I've shown the, the overall car that of course includes all of its parts. Does that disclosure cover those parts? So I now have a three-year clock ticking or is something else at play? No, it absolutely does. So that's one of the great joys of unregistered design rights is that they are incredibly flexible. So say someone launches a new vehicle and someone you know, likes the handles and copies only the handles or the steering wheel, they would be unregistered rights in just those parts of the car, you know, if they're new and have individual characters, so they have to be valid, as I was saying earlier. But if they've been copied, then that will be infringement of the unregistered right for three years after the date of first disclosure in the EU. So that's the great joy of these unregistered rights. They really are very flexible and you only claim the unregistered design in the bits of the design that have been copied and that way greater chances of success on litigation. David, thank you very much. This is an area of the self-driving environment that raises a lot of questions, especially when you're interacting now with new things, new parts new audiovisual cues to the users that we've not had before in these vehicles. And so this insight is invaluable. Thank you very much for your time. And we look forward to hearing back from you if we hear any new twists and turns, no pun intended, of this exciting industry. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Paul.